Take your Bibles then with me this morning, if you would, both here in the auditorium and watching online to Leviticus, Leviticus and chapter 18, Leviticus chapter 18. I do not expect any sympathy. I chose to go through this book this year, and it's this chapter that we are on for Father's Day. However, I don't know that we could have picked a better passage for Father's Day. Leviticus chapter 18, I want to read the first five verses this morning. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. This is the word of God. The theme of this chapter is family. And what better theme and what better passage than for Father's Day this morning. Family is a gift from God. And God has given us the gift of family from the beginning. He first created Adam and then shortly thereafter created Eve. And they together started the first family and constituted the first family. And so God has given us family for many different reasons. And to perhaps illustrate some of those reasons, I'd like to begin with an illustration for you this morning of a story from my family, which has since taken on the status of legend. We lost dad 17 years ago this October. And so Father's Day is always a reminder of how much we miss him. Uh, but when he was with us, he himself was rather legendary. And so my father had many rules. One of the rules that constituted or sort of guided our family was at mealtime, which we all ate together during the supper meal, if you complained about your portion size, one of two things would happen. If you complained that you received too much of something you didn't like, you received more. If you complained about something that you really enjoyed being not enough, it was taken away. And so this particular evening, I was in either upper, upper elementary or junior high. My mother made one of her famous chocolate cakes. And so we were all looking forward to dessert. My father would always cut the pieces of cake and distribute them. And so when I received mine, I was unimpressed with the size of the chocolate cake, especially after seeing the size of pieces that my siblings had received. Now what happened next happened within the space of a few seconds, but I'm going to stretch it out a little bit for context. There's a lot of things that happened that were going on. 
So in my adolescent or slightly pre-adolescent brain, I was shocked and frankly grieved at the injustice of this smallish piece of chocolate cake, which I so enjoyed. And so, without thinking, I let out an ah. At which point, my father sprung into action and reached for the plate. At which point, I realized I was going to lose my chocolate cake. So I reached down onto the plate, grabbed as much of the piece of chocolate cake as I could, and stuffed it in my mouth. At which point, my father went in after it, <laughs> dug it out of my mouth, put it back on the plate, and then because my jaw was already on the table in shock, he was able to take some extra time to clean out any remaining residue <laughs> and then remove the plate from in front of me. So I went from cake to the threat of no cake to all the cake to none of the cake <laughs> in the span of a few seconds. In that moment and in the years since, I learned a few things. I learned that my father was surprisingly fast, especially for an old fella. My thoughts at the time, he was probably younger then than I am now. I also learned that you don't mess with my dad because if you were going up against my father, you would always lose. It was a losing proposition. I understood that despite my best attempts at anarchy, my father was in our family to make sure that rule and structure and stability reigned supreme and not the desires of my adolescent heart. I also learned much later, not in that moment. I don't know how much I learned in that moment of an abject disappointment. But I learned that my father had something deeper in mind. It was not just the fact that we were not to complain about our portion size at the meal. It was that we too were to cultivate a heart of gratitude. And in any moments where we expressed ingratitude, ungratefulness, we were in fact questioning his character, my mother's character, and ultimately the character of God who supplies all things. And knowing that one of the markers of the people of God in the Old Testament was murmuring and grumbling and complaining. My father was attempting to teach us deeper lessons. Lessons which I did not know and did not recognize at the time, but upon further reflection. And this story gets brought up at different family reunions down through the years. I realized there was much more going on than just the loss of a small piece of chocolate cake, which is probably bigger than I cared to admit. We noted that in starting in chapter 17 of the book of Leviticus, coming off of chapter 16, which is the day of the atonement, Yom Kippur, the one day of year, the highest holy day of the Israelite calendar, where the high priest went before God and offered sacrifice on behalf of himself and all of the people. Coming off of that, we have the holiness code as it is known for a number of the chapter, rest of the chapters of Leviticus. As we have noted in our walk through Leviticus, the indicatives always 
precede the imperatives. What we mean by that is the truths of God and his word and who he is and his grace always come before his commands. Now, we oftentimes look at God's commands, zero in on them, and depending on our perspective of God, we think that he is perhaps vindictive or malicious or these types of things, but the reality is God's grace always precedes his commands for us to glorify him. And so this such is the case. Chapter 16 then comes before chapter 17 and 18. As we continue through the holiness codes, chapter 18 is exclusively about the family and the family relationships. And so in the first place then this morning, we see that family comes from God. Family is God's idea in verses one through five, which we read. Now, six times in this passage, we see this phrase, I am the Lord your God, or simply I am the Lord. It occurs three times just in these first five verses, and then three times throughout the rest of this chapter. Which leads us to understand and recognize in the first place that God is our authority. As it relates to family coming from God, the authority for the creation of the family and for how the family is to operate and function also comes from God. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things and certainly of the family. And so when we read that statement, for I am the Lord your God, we are correct in noting in that a statement of authority. God is God. He is the one from which all things come. And so he has every right to hold us accountable to who he is and how he has created us to be. He is then the authority in family as in all things. But I think what we oftentimes miss, especially because what comes next in this chapter are things that our culture certainly prizes and sometimes that we want to do and God restricts us and so we can look at that and say, oh, God is so restrictive and God just doesn't want us to have any fun and God does not want us to be free to express our true selves and all of these things. The reality is that we may miss the fact that the name of God used here and throughout the passage is Yahweh, it's his personal name. God is not coming to the nation of Israel primarily as their top-down authority. I'm the boss, I'm in charge, therefore you will do as I say. Now if anybody in the universe can say that and that be true, it certainly is God. But please don't misread this passage as we misread a lot of scripture. God is not coming to his nation of Israel, to his people that he loves, that he, that he brought out of the nation of Israel, that he has had great patience with, despite their rank sinfulness. It has not come to them here in this passage primarily as their authority, although that is certainly present, but he comes to them as their father as their personal relationship, as a personal relationship with them. Although he is God and has every right to set the rules and maintain the rules, he comes in love. He comes in care, and compassion, and concern. He knows what's best. As my father did, we can look at that incident and say, well, you could just let that go. What's the big deal about one piece of cake? The problem with that is, if it's cake this time, what is it next time? And then that builds into my little idol-producing heart 
the fact that I'm in charge instead of God being in charge. And where does that lead? Well, we can see that in our cultures. When parents and fathers abdicate their role, not just of authority, but of loving care and concern and compassion, when in our culture we use the word love and affirmation as synonymous terms when they are most definitely not, we have abdicated this reality that we just let people come up with whatever they want and we affirm them in whatever they want. And that is the opposite of love. And so when God the Father comes to his nation of Israel as he's going to lay out rules and regulations and restrictions that govern the family, he is not coming to them primarily with a hammer to say, I'm just going to wait for you to mess up so I can smite you. That is not the heart of God. He comes to them as one who loves them who knows what's best for them because he created them, who knows what will cause them to thrive and flourish, who conversely knows what will cause them division and destruction and heartache and pain. He wants to save them from that. He wants them to become like him, who is truth and love and justice and compassion, and mercy and grace, kindness, gentleness, peace. So as you read this passage, as all other passages in Scripture, be careful that you do not get the tone wrong. We read that and we can say, for I am the Lord your God. And that is not the tone with which this is given. For I am the Lord. I am your Father who loves you and wants what's best for you. Notice in the third place then, verse 3, just sort of the pivot verse in this first five verse section. He, that is God, not culture, defines family. He warns them that they are not to be like the culture that they left, the culture of Egypt, and that they are not to adopt the culture that he is bringing them into, the culture of Canaan. There is always the reality, the danger of the culture around us defining for us what truth is, who God is, and what is seen as being best and good and profitable. And God reminds his people, he is the definition of those things. And so our concern should not primarily be to not be like the culture, but our concern is to become more like our God. And by definition, then, we will become less and less like our culture. Our culture is redefining a lot of things and redefining them at a rapid rate. But we must remember, as ancient Israel were reminded, that it is God and who he is and his character that defines for us what is reality and not the culture around us. The Egyptian pantheon of gods and the deification of God's creation and even of sexuality and certainly the Canaanites, some of the practices of which we'll get into later on and moving throughout the rest of the Pentateuch and through the rest of the Old Testament. It is these practices God's going to say later on in this passage that have led to destruction and pain and the land, even, 
the geography being impacted by the wickedness of the land of Canaan. I think that we think that freedom is the goal. That I need to be as free as I can possibly be and that will bring me happiness. The reality is that absolute freedom, first of all, does not exist. But freedom is not expressed or enjoyed in the absence of our nature and the reality is our nature is sinful. And so to follow our hearts To be free to do what we want to do is not freedom, but is in fact slavery. It's slavery to our passions and our desires, which are not what honors God and what causes us to thrive and flourish. And so God says to his nation, you are going to be impacted by and influenced by the culture. The culture that you were in and the culture you're going to. But please remember that they do not define for you who I am or who the family is supposed to be. I do. Do not walk in their statutes, God says, but walk in mine. And then notice in the fourth place, he has our best interest at heart. If a person does them, verse 5, he shall live by them. We don't have enough time to fully unpack this. We'll do so more so in our Q&A, which you're welcome to stick around for from 11 until uh, we run out of questions. But I think basically what this is saying here is not saying that if you keep all of God's commandments to perfection, you can earn relationship with him. But if you have relationship with God, then living life the way that he has said it should be lived and living life in a way that expresses his character gives life. It is a life-giving reality. It is others-oriented, God-focused. To live life our way takes, does not give. When we live life according to our desires, we take from others. We use others. We abuse others. And then if they don't do what we want, we lose them. Because left to ourselves, it's all about us. I really, really wanted that piece of cake. But God is something better. And that is to live life according to who he is. One who loves one who is others-oriented, one who is life-giving. And as we're going to see in the next section, when we do not live this way, we take and we destroy. Sin typically begins when we doubt the heart of God. That goes back to the garden. Satan comes along and says, did God really say that? And when Eve says that this is what God says and adds a prohibition to it, focusing from last week on the what and not the who, then Satan boldly declares, no, 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 see, God doesn't have your best interest in mind. 
See, God's holding out on you. God has secrets. But if you follow me, if you follow your heart, your ways, your thinking, because after all, you're a genius, because you have a finite brain, so that's amazing, you will discover things beyond God. You don't need God. He's, he's not good for you. He's not good to you. And doubting God's character led to a disobedience of God's regulations and rules and laws. And so Grace Baptists understand that in these rules and regulations and restrictions, God has our best interest at heart. Once again, in that moment, I questioned whether my father had my best interest in heart. But I recognize now that he did, and our Heavenly Father does. Verses 6 through 23 then give a number of prohibitions, all of which have to do, or almost all of which have to do with sexuality. And you would think, reading the list, especially from 6 to 18, that these prohibitions and restrictions would be unnecessary. And yet, we did not invent perversion. The human heart has been sinful since the fall of Adam and Eve and continues to be so. And so there's a number of broad categories. I just want to walk through them and then we will walk through our points. In verses 6 through 18, this is the biggest category in this section and it all has to do with incestual relationships. The reality is that inappropriate sexual relations take to use somebody for your pleasure. It's one of the worst kinds of sin. And God, in an effort to protect his people out of love and care and compassion for them, lays out for them very clearly the types of relationships that are off limits. Sexual desire is not dirty, it's from God, it's his idea. But it's to be used appropriately. It's to be used to give life, to bless. It is not used to take. And unfortunately, in my biblical counseling ministry, I have run up against far too many individuals that have had their innocence stolen from them not by strangers, but by family members. Incestual relationships, inappropriate sexual relationships, take, they steal, they destroy. Same in verse 19, we've covered some of this already, but even a husband and a wife in which relationships, sexual relations, are not only uh, you know, approved by God, but are blessed by God. There are times where, in deference to his wife, a husband should abstain. Because again, to force sexual contact is not life-giving, it is taking. And then in verse 20, we have the reality of idolatry. Verse 21, at first glance, does not appear to have any sexual uh, realities to it. But again, it is a, a, a reality of taking, of destroying, offering children 
in sacrifice to a, a deity. And perhaps we could make a modern day application where we want to have our sexual relationships without some of the consequences that may arise. Verse 22 prohibits homosexual sexual relationships. Once again, these types of relationships cannot give life. And so they do not follow the heart and the character of God. And then in verse 23, bestiality is prohibited. Quickly then, notice in the second point, family is designed to give life. Sex is a good gift from God. This is his idea. Comes from him, and it's good. He says that he's going to give a husband to his wife, and they will become one flesh. This is God's idea. But in the second place, we can recognize that God's gifts reflect his character. He does not give gifts that are separate from or in opposition to who he is. The gifts that he gives reflects who he is, reflects the giver. And so because he is the one who gives life, protects life, celebrates life, blesses life, the gifts that he gives ought to do the same. And when we pervert the good gifts of God, we do so to take, to steal, for selfish reasons, for our own pleasure. And we do that to the detriment of others, and sometimes the destruction of them. And so family is a good gift from God. From the beginning in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, God creates the first family, male and female. And therefore we see in the final point under family design to give life, family then should reflect God's character. Family, and if I can speak boldly and frankly to fathers as leaders in those families, we are to pray and to model who God is in our homes so that our homes, as much as we can with the strength that God gives, reflect his character. That our homes give life, that our homes celebrate life, that our homes are full of love and forgiveness and grace and mercy and compassion and kindness and gentleness and goodness and truth and love, all the things and so much more that God is. That is our calling and it is a high one indeed. So family comes from God, it's designed to give life and it preserves life as we close this chapter out in verses 24 through 30. Ungodliness destroys the land that the Canaanites are on has become unclean. And if you go all the way back into Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, hundreds of years before the nation of Israel is at this point that the sin of the Canaanites continues and it grows. And contrary to how many people read the Old Testament and see in the Old Testament a God of vindictive judgment, we actually see when we read the Old Testament a God of great mercy and grace, of, of almost incomprehensible long-suffering and patience. Those who knew God best in the Old Testament and the, and the new know him most for his grace, probably perhaps most for his holiness, but certainly his grace and his mercy. How long did the sin of the land of Canaan come before the thrice holy God? 
the perversion, the celebration of death and destruction, the flaunting of human desire run rampant, anarchy and chaos. And God says, you are not to be like that. Where ungodliness destroys, godliness preserves. He says in verses 26 through 28, keep my statutes. Coming back to what he says in verses one through five, walk in my ways, reflect my character. So you can preserve life. Dads, that's one of our roles in our homes is to reflect the character of our heavenly father, to preserve life, to love our children, but not always to affirm them because love and affirmation are different things. To show them and remind them truth. To have times of family devotions and worship to pray with our children. To speak truth to them. To live truth out in front of them. To preserve life. Godly families then prioritize God in verse 29. The reality comes that if anyone does not follow these statutes, but instead participates in these abominations, God says that person should be cut off from among their people. It is a difficult thing to prioritize God over family. And far too many families are not doing that. But the reality is that godly families prioritize God. Never stop loving their children but they love God more. And they know that if their children love God supremely, that is what is best for them. That is what would make them thrive. And then in verse 30, godly families reflect God's character. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord, your God. As always, all of us, and perhaps fathers in particular, should not hear this message and come away thinking, I have to try harder and I have to do more. Maybe I haven't been as good of a father as I ought to have been, and so I need to, I need to read the Bible more, and I need to have more family devotions, and I need to do more things. Please do not hear that from this passage. God comes to his nation of Israel and right in the middle of the book, which is in the middle of the five books Moses wrote, is the Day of Atonement. God knows who we are and he knows as earthly fathers, as human fathers, we are not and cannot be perfect. And so our role is not to be perfect, but our role is to introduce our children and our wives and all those in our sphere of influence to the one who is the one who we need just as desperately as we are praying for those in our families, the one that we need just as much as they do. Dads, you need the gospel just as much as your children. And so as much as your children need your nuggets of wisdom and the occasional right hand to grab some cake out of your, mouth, your children's mouths, they need you to reveal to them, to show to them the heart of God, 
When's the last time you asked for your children's forgiveness? When's the last time that as a father you showed repentance? You showed that you are just in need of the perfection of Jesus Christ as much as you are telling them they do. Dads, we're not perfect, we can't be, but there always is one who is, and we thank God for him. That is God, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in all of his perfection lived life as it was supposed to be lived, died even though he did not have to, taking upon himself the penalties for sin, he did not commit our sins, and then rising again the third day, triumphant over sin, to give us hope, and to enable us and to empower us to live life as he has created it to be lived. As our culture grows increasingly dark, God has called us to shine ever brighter who he is. Not ever because we believe ourselves better than anyone else, because we are not. But because he has loved us with an unspeakable love. And out of gratitude for that love, we just want to love him in return. Let us close in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for this day where we honor fathers. Thank you for the role that fathers play in our families. It is a role that is often mocked, denigrated, downplayed in our culture. But Father, it is vital and necessary. We need dads who are gonna stand for truth in their homes and teach their children the same. Dads are going to humble themselves and pray. Dads are going to recognize that they do not have their own perfection. Perfection can only come from outside of them. It can only come through Jesus Christ. Dads who are going to speak into the culture, let their children know that what our culture prizes is not necessarily what you prize. What our culture celebrates is not necessarily to be celebrated. And what is to be celebrated is by our culture mocked, ridiculed, and attempted to be canceled. Father, we live in difficult times, but we always have because we live in a sin-cursed world. Draw us ever closer to you. And as the writer of the book of Hebrews lets us know, may we look to Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith. He is our hope. He is our strength. He is our example. He is our comfort. He is our joy. He is our Savior and he is our Lord. So Father, draw all of us closer to you. May we celebrate life. May we be about that which celebrates life, which is others-oriented and which glorifies you and who you are. And may we lovingly, gently, but courageously stand for truth in love against what seems to be a tsunami wave of untruth and rebellion against you. Not because we are better, because Father, we know that we are not, but simply because we are sinners saved by your grace and we want all other sinners in our lives, just like us, to see that same grace that, Father, we have been recipients of. It is all of you and none of us. Help us to love those around us with your love. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.